You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 13th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, Bolivia has a new interim president, while the previous leader, Eva Morales, has escaped to Mexico. My guests, Robert Fox and Victor Bulma-Thomas, will discuss that and the day's other news, including how countries can protect their elections from foreign meddling and the state of emergency in Venice as floodwater approaches record levels. Plus, Monocle's executive editor, Josh Fennett, and his plan for a digital decency initiative. I didn't enjoy my journey to work this morning, and it's an increasingly common feeling. Yes, dear reader, London's number 30 bus is no place for the demure and devoted bookworm to pursue a paperback in peace. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Robert Fox, London Evening Standards Defence Editor, and Victor Bulma-Thomas, Associate Fellow at Chatham House. Let's begin in Bolivia, where former President Eva Morales has now escaped to Mexico, and an opposition senator, Janine Añez, has declared herself as the new interim president. Victor, can you just backtrack and tell us how we got to this point? We got to this point because there were major concerns about the accuracy of the poll held on October the 20th uh, in Bolivia. And that led to a report by the Organization of American States, which concluded that there had been serious irregularities. At that point, uh, President Morales offered to uh, rerun the elections and to replace the head of the Supreme Electoral Tribunal. Uh, But in the meantime, the head of the armed forces said, you've got to step down. And he stepped down. And do you think that that will will help? I mean, Robert, do you have faith that the developments will be for the better? I've never been to Bolivia and um, I'm very interested uh, in... in, um, following this thing, because as Victor was saying, it is a question of legitimacy. I have been reading the latest quotes from Morales in, uh, on his arrival in Mexico. And even this, the terms in which he has been offered asylum, the terms in which he is talking about or not prosecuting his political career is very, very interesting. But for me, it's just terribly sad because I think this is one of the first, if not the first, um, heads of government or head in, in Bolivia that has come from the indigenous community. Um, I think there's a, a bigger thing, uh, just to widen it out, going on here in the way popular protest is working. There's an awful lot of it about, and you know, the, you get terrific eagle's eye overviews in things like the New York Times, but when you've got Chile, you've got Bolivia, you've got Algeria, you've got Iraq, you've got Lebanon, what, what, and, and, and there's a lot more. Um, uh, what must be said, of course, there are highly individual characteristics, but the way crowds are behaving political crowds are behaving 
in this phase of uh, populism is extremely interesting, so much so that the term, a generic term populism, looks almost vacuous, mm. looks almost empty. But perhaps we can continue talking about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, very interesting how this has become a, a global movement. Um, Victor, do you think that, that what has happened will make a, a positive difference to the country? No, it'll make it, uh, it's a negative uh, impact. Uh, while I'm sure there were some irregularities in this election, uh, it's not the only one. And the question is, how best to respond? And I actually think Morales's offer to rerun the elections with or without himself as a candidate was probably the best one. Um, to bring uh, the army back into Bolivian politics as effectively as what has happened is frankly uh, disastrous given the role the military has had in the last 200 years in uh, at the head of uh, Bolivian uh, political affairs. So um, I think one looks at this with some dread. Presumably eventually there will be uh, fresh elections but without Morales as a candidate and since he represents roughly half the electorate, it's really difficult to see how those elections would be legitimate because there is no obvious uh, replacement for him. So I'm afraid Bolivia is in for a very turbulent period and uh, whatever satisfaction um, those who've brought him down may currently feel, you can be sure it will be matched by those who feel um, betrayed by his... uh, uh, voluntary exile. Mm. I mean, Robert, you're talking about global movements. And of course, one of the other things that we've seen happening worldwide is outside interference. And I wonder if there's been any of that in the internal politics of Bolivia. There always is. I mean, you can't, you, you can't, you can't look at um, Latin America without taking that in, into consideration. Victor won't be at all surprised, having worked out my age, that I am a student of how do you read Donald Duck? the famous uh, polemic against uh, cultural imperialism uh, in Latin America in the, f- in the 40s and, 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 and 50s. It, it is quite obvious. I mean, it is not isolated and this will happen. But one of the things, one of the books that I'm reading at the moment, which I think is really a book of the week, is Krastoff and Holmes on the light that failed. And it's where we are mistakenly labelling our politics now in the post-Cold War euphoria, uh, Francis Fukuyama, the end of history, that everything was going to go towards capitalist liberal democracy. And of course, a lot of the imitations have been failures. And it is very worrying. And it's very interesting to hear Victor explain the granularity of how the polity of uh, Bolivia should work or could work. But it is very sad from, from, from his and other accounts. It really does seem to be in reverse. Robert Fox and Victor Bulmer-Thomas there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Georgina. Venice has been hit by its highest tide in half a century. High waters peaked at 1.87 metres, which prompted flood alarms to ring out across the city. Troops have been seen wading through St. Mark's Square, and Venice's mayor Luigi Brugnaro has blamed the flooding on climate change. 
The Bolivian opposition senator Janine Añez has declared herself interim president. The move follows the resignation of the left-wing Evo Morales, who has since sought refuge in Mexico. Lawmakers from Mr. Morales's party boycotted the session, which means Añez's appointment isn't recognized. Schools in Hong Kong will close on Thursday because of concerns about safety. The announcement comes as anti-government protesters have paralyzed large parts of the city-state's financial hub. The protests have already forced some of Hong Kong's schools and businesses to close their doors. And finally, the Monocle Minute reports that Baby It's Cold Outside is returning to some Canadian radio stations. The hit was given the cold shoulder by some broadcasters in the wake of the Me Too movement, but it's returning after feedback from listeners. For more on this story, head to monocle.com forward slash minute. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Georgina. Thanks, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin, here with Victor Bulma-Thomas and Robert Fox. Let's continue now with recent headlines about outside interference in politics. I'd like to ask you both, how do we protect elections from foreign meddling? There's a wide agreement that Russia's been trying to influence elections around the world. And just recently, there have been a couple of examples that may have been indicative of interference here in Britain. So what's the latest on the Russia report that Prime Minister Johnson is refusing to release, Victor? Well, the latest is, of course, uh, Hillary Clinton has intervened, which I guess is an example of foreign meddling, uh, to insist on the publication of a report about alleged Russian meddling, which is another form of foreign meddling. So uh, I think uh, we have to accept that it is impossible to run elections without some degree of foreign meddling. And that's not just true of Latin America, it's true of other parts of the world. Uh, I would have thought there could be no more clear example of foreign meddling than President Trump's interview with Nigel Farage on LBC recently, Mm. which has led to this unilateral pact between the Brexit Party and the Conservative Party. Uh, We're not going to stop that. But I think what the electorate has to do, and they have to be backed up in this by the media, is to become a bit more sophisticated Uh, they are going to be subject to all kinds of lies and abuse during election times. And they just have to learn to sift out what is false from what is true. They can't, of course, do it uh, perfectly. uh, But nonetheless, they have to make, I think, a bigger effort. So when numbers are banded around, which are manifestly false. Uh, It's not just the media's job to see through these false numbers. It's also down to the electorate to do a bit of homework. Mm. Robert, what do you think? I mean, should the voters be responsible for their own fact-checking or can countries keep their elections protected from any foreign I always love finger-pointing at the media. You you get the media you deserve as a part of it. Um, Yes, I absolutely agree with Victor, though, that it is a question of digital literacy. It's literacy in this kind of thing. And we did get caught absolutely flat-footed in 2016 because it is now quite clear, thinking of my colleague, Carol Cadwallader, 
and um, The Great Hack, wonderful, but Netflix, Netflix, interestingly, documentary. Um, the the levels of interference are, are, are interesting, are multi-layered, and um, Russia, and it's not only Russia, I absolutely agree, has form in this because it, look at the way that Mr. Uh, Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin is now very active uh, in, in, in hard power and soft power in Africa with the Wagner um, uh, 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 mercenary or sorry military consultants uh, moving uh, uh, very tough uh, armed corps into Libya but also being involved in, in an information disinformation uh, um, uh, uh, program I, but I, then I'm coming around to why I agree with Victor I think the media is absolutely illiterate about this the, the mainstream metropolitan media in the UK America a little bit, no, quite a bit better, but not not better enough. If you see what I mean, I think in the, I would go quite radical because we have heard in the election campaign in the UK, and it is interesting. There's been a lot of lip service paid to this. Oh, we've got our own team, say the three or four principal parties, including the Greens, looking at media interference of the persuadables, um, as uh, Dominic Cummings, uh, the advisor to the Prime Minister, called them. But in fact, it, it has to be much broader and deeper. This form of media studies now has to be part of core curriculum at sixth form or even lower level in schools. I think that it's where I, I would I would go further and drill in from what Victor is saying. I think journalism courses which are important, by the way. They're absolutely vital if we're going to keep a mainstream uh, me media going. They've got to be far more savvy about the digital word and persuadability and the way personalities respond uh, to this new kind of communication, which does play very strongly to the acute narcissistic type of personality because social media is so enclosed. It is so inward-looking. It's bubbles. It's silos. It is not the global village. Mm. Well, what about the the role of the state, Victor? Surely the state is ultimately responsible. Uh, well, it depends what you mean by the state. Uh, I mean, if you're talking about independent bodies created by the state to kind of verify the veracity of an election, uh, the vote count, the uh, money that is uh, poured in, etc., etc., well, we have all that. We have all these institutions, how effective they are is another matter. Um, I don't think setting up another institution financed by the state is actually going to deal with this problem. And we do come back to a question of civics at the end, which is the responsibility of the individual voter uh, in return for uh, what they hope will be a better form of government. I mean, if you want better government, you're going to have to invest a bit of time and effort in uh, making sure that your vote is cast wisely. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert, what kind of conclusions then does this mean we should draw of how well democracy works nowadays if we really can't protect ourselves from interference? Well, I think it's... Go back to Aristotle. I mean, it was always an imperfect form of government. Mm. But the kind of democracies that we now see in advanced countries really are is extremely worrying, not only because of what we were talking about earlier with authoritarian populism, that it's become so tribal, but in fact that this is the thing that we saw so strongly in the two 
uh, indicative votes, if we can call it that, in 2016, the Brexit referendum and the, the Trump election. It was so much the outcry of the left behinds. And the left behinds have a point, by the way. I, th- I think that because their voice doesn't get into it. I think that really uh, you're looking at a major crisis in UK now. It is a failure of representative politics and how you bank that up with community politics, citizens forums, things like that. And don't say, oh, no, that's pie in the sky. It doesn't work. Look what it did in Ireland. It changed the complexion of society, in my mind, absolutely for the better in a quite extraordinary way. Mm -hmm. Victor, would you agree? Yes. And I, I... If I could, I'd just bring it back to Bolivia to sort of complete the circle. Because in Bolivia, although, of course, there was uh, foreign meddling in the sense of uh, finance and Facebook adverts and all the rest of it, the actual vote count wasn't that inaccurate, I suspect, plus or minus, let's say, three or four percent. It was the fact that Morales needed to win by 10% to avoid going into a second round, uh, 10% more than his challenger, that that was the problem. And therefore, a few votes may have been stolen here and there in order to get him over the line. But the actual vote itself was probably fairly accurate. So here we have an election where, despite foreign meddling and all the rest of it, uh, the situation would have been fine if the vote itself on the day had been counted uh, properly. So sometimes we, I think, get too excited about foreign meddling. Look, I was born in 1948. That was the year in which the United States meddled uh, ferociously in the Italian elections in order to prevent the communists winning, and they succeeded. The Christian Democrats won, even though almost certainly it was electoral fraud. And they stayed in power for 50 years. And I don't think there's been a single year since I was born when there haven't been elections around the world in which there hasn't been foreign meddling. Mm. So we shouldn't get too starry-eyed about, A, the past, and B, too depressed about the present. Uh, All we have to do is just grow up a little, and that applies to all of us. Finally, the weather, except this story is much bigger than just the elements. Floods in Venice and in the north of England, bushfires in Australia and California. Uh, I mean, is there any doubt that this is actually a a climate change story? Uh, Neither Australia's Scott Morrison nor the US's Donald Trump appears to be taking climate change seriously. And I wonder, Robert, if this is impacting on how these extreme events are handled in in their countries. Well, it is extraordinary. We are getting what... um is used to be loosely referred to as weird weather uh, in within a few days of Trump definitively withdrawing the United States from the uh, the, the Paris Accord on on climate change, which was, I think it, it was it was good, but it was pretty timid. Um, Venice. I know well, and Venice is a real shocker, but it's a real indicator. Uh, Venice, they've been building the barriers for as long, sorry, we're we're into longevity now, for as long as I've been in journalism, as long as I've been going to Venice, which is 1965. Billions, I won't say have been wasted, they've been peculated. They've actually, a lot of it's gone in corruption. But um, that being said, Venice is a perfect storm, pardon the pun, because it shows you the crisis of modern industrial tourism. It shows you uh, uh, the crisis of littoral, that is coastal, fragility in the Mediterranean, which is so marked. What is it? It's an enormously high proportion of the Mediterranean population of the, of the truly Mediterranean countries live within 10 or 12 miles of, of, of the coast. And uh, we've been watching, I've been watching this for 50 years. 
years. I've been writing about it uh, for 50 years. Um, you are quite right that we can see now climate change-related phenomena. The maize famine, for instance, in, 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 in Central America, increased desertification, appallingly high, high temperatures. I don't need uh, to go on. But this is where I would take Victor's cue. I am very worried about media on this. I think the media debate, we say, oh, we give uh, secular canonization to Sir David Attenborough. Well, good for him. The media just goes on one horror story after another, as if it's a Hammer House of Horrors movie. And it is not really effectively encouraging engagement. This is the story of the floods, which are getting worse uh, because there are so many vulnerable floodplain um, uh, centres of habitation in the UK. But the media really is doing a very poor job in joining the dots because they have got to express it in real terms that doesn't frighten the horses so that people will get engaged socially and politically. On yep. Sorry, I mean, end of sermon. <laughs> in, t- in terms of media, a couple of the British front pages today featured very dramatic pictures of an Australian woman and a small child uh, trying to escape from a fire there. Do you think, um, that, uh, Victor, that images like that um, have an impact on on how we see the urgency of tackling climate change, or, or have they already lost their power? Well, uh, no, they're very powerful images. Of course they are, but they don't lead to strategic planning, and that's the problem. And I think when we deal with these uh, uh, disasters, we perhaps focus too much on the impact of climate change which is very real and very important, but we tend to downplay the way in which the situation would have been worse anyway, even without climate change, because of what we're doing in terms of, in this case of the UK, you know, building on floodplains and paving over front drives and all the sort of things that makes it impossible for the water to run away. Mm. And the same is true in Australia. The same is true in California. The same is true in Central America, as Robert mentioned. There are, in all these cases, you will find direct action, human action, unrelated to climate change, which has made the situation worse. And then, of course, if you get on top of that, the impact of climate change and extreme weather patterns, you get a double whammy. And I think we must remember that there are the two things going on and not just the one. And then you bring them together in terms of strategic planning. Not knowing anything about the fact that we were going to talk about this issue today, as it happened last night on a train, I had a conversation with two Norwegians. And they come from the north of Norway, where they get three, four feet of snow for many months every year. And not one day are schools closed. And not one day are the roads closed. And they just can't understand how we are totally disrupted by uh, things like uh, floods and snow and, and all the rest of it. And they're absolutely right, because they have strategic planning to deal with that. And we have to do the same and stop pretending that this is an isolated event and that somehow we haven't made it worse through our own action. Victor Bulmer-Thomas and Robert Fox. Thank you both very much. In a moment, Monocle's Josh Fennett shares his thoughts on how we could make work commutes more bearable. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store, 
You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin. Finally today, Monocle's Josh Fennett's suggestion for a digital decency initiative. I didn't enjoy my journey to work this morning and it's an increasingly common feeling. Yes, dear reader, London's number 30 bus is no place for the demure and devoted bookworm to pursue a paperback in peace. Instead, it's usually a riot of loud phone calls, smelly fast food and recently an incident that involved some nail clippers and the removal of one passenger's sock. The social contract that makes shared spaces work is fast being rewritten by selfish phone-touting zombies and it's rotten. But you and I are going to do something about it. So here's the plan, a digital decency initiative. We've waited for plane, train and bus operators to launch one under their own steam, but instead I've had to go ahead and draft it myself. To get the ball rolling, we need to do something about phone cameras. Filming and photographing other passengers is rude, and the chances are they don't want to be in your blurry home movie. They're out. Next, phone calls should be conducted either imperceptibly or, if on trains, in the spaces between carriages. Lovely that you're catching up with your family. Terrible that I'm learning about Uncle Henry's gallstones and all against my will. Oh, and forget those horrid phone speakers. Quiet headphones or nothing, please. Why should we all suffer? People caught playing music out loud should be ejected from the vehicle, whether it's moving or not. A rant, perhaps, but why should it always fall to the tired traveller to take responsibility and call for calm on their journey? Also, most people are generally good, honest and kind, and it will just take a gentle reminder to keep stumm and tone down that phone call. Keeping their socks on is another matter entirely, though. Transport firms, it's your move, and if you need be, I'll be on the top deck of the number 30 bus, trying to mind my own business. That was Monocle's Josh Fennett, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Marcus Hippie and researched by Yolene Goffin and Giacomo Harper. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Steph Chungu. Coming up at 20.00 London time, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 18.00 London time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye. <laughs> 